Indeed, this man illustrates the tragic state of the Jewish people in his day and really the spiritual state of everyone in this world because by nature we are spiritually paralyzed. We are unable to help ourselves. Unless God intervenes in his grace, none of us will be saved. If you're here today and you're thinking you can somehow earn your way to heaven, you are not in a position to be saved. God does not help those who help themselves. Jesus Christ is very clear that God helps the helpless. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Healing at Bethesda. We looked yesterday at Jesus' very public miracle, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. As we pick up today, Jesus asked what some may think to be an obvious answer. But Pastor Carl will show that non-believers are often faced with a similar question and fail to give the right answer. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, and whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in. He was made well from whatever disease he was inflicted. And so that's why the multitude is here, because there were healing powers at different moments in the waters of Bethesda when the angel of the Lord came down. Not the angel of God, but an an, not the angel of the Lord that we studied a few weeks ago, but an angel of the Lord, a servant of God, a messenger. So this man, like many, was looking, hoping for a miracle. Now that's the multitude who are sick. Secondly, I want you to consider the man who is sighing. Look at verse 5. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. Now, that's a long time. That's half a lifetime. Whether he'd been at that pool the entire time, we're not specifically told. In either case, we do know from the narrative that follows that he had been here for a long time. And maybe in the early months, in the early years, he waited with a great sense of expectancy. But he never made it into the water first. We're not specifically told, of course, what the man's problem was, but it appears that he has some kind of infirmity that did not enable him to move or to walk. Verse 8 suggests he had some kind of paralysis, and that's not insignificant because one of the signs that the Messiah would do, Isaiah 35 and verse 6, and he, his, is that he would make the lame leap like a deer. And so this man hoped that somehow he would get down there and he would be cured. But the years went by, and I'm sure there was disappointment after disappointment. It appears that his friends and families, they probably gave up on him, and they weren't here to help him. And so this man is a fixture at the pool, sitting in his own hopelessness, but somehow he was still looking. And so every day there were these people who were blind, lame, sick, deaf people, withered on the outside. And I'm sure maybe one hoped out smart the next so that when the angel of God came, they would get into the pool first. Now look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? 
Now, the Bible says he knew that he was already, he had already been there a long time. Now, if you have the NIV, it reads a little different. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been there. Now, I told you there are different kinds of translations. And the NIV is trying to make the Bible as readable as possible. But in doing that, they give up on occasion literalness. But the Greek word does not mean learned. It means he knew. That's why in every other single English translation I could find, it always is translated the same. The English Standard Version says he knew that he had been there. The RSV, he knew. The new RSV, he knew. The uh, King James, he knew. The new King James, he knew. The ISV, he knew. Every translation says he knew. Even the paraphrases, which really aren't translations, they're commentaries, and sometimes they totally miss it. Even those translations or paraphrases, commentaries, got it right. And so this is important because John is writing to show that Jesus is the Christ, that he's no ordinary man, that he is God-made man, God in human flesh, the omniscient Son of God who knew everything about this man. Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. And he said to him, next slide, do you wish to get well? Now, knowing everything about this man, out of this multitude who were present, Jesus chose this individual. Unlike the paralytic who had dropped, been dropped from the roof by his four friends, remember that, in the other Gospels? Jesus chose this man out of the multitude. Some might ask, well, why didn't he heal all of them? People ask me sometimes, well, Pastor, I don't understand it. You know, when we get saved, when we're born from above, we become children of God. Why doesn't God just heal us all and keep us from all these infirmities? Well, if he did that, why would people want to become Christians? <laughs> Not to get saved and forgiven of their sin that they need to recognize and repent, but to get healed. All for the wrong reason. Yes, the Lord could have spoken to that whole crowd and they would have all been healed. But he didn't come primarily as a healer. He came as a savior. And he healed just certain kinds of people because there were certain kinds of miracles that would authenticate, among other things, that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Now, everybody wants to be well, at least most people. That's why prosperity theology sells so well. These preachers who travel the country and tell you it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy, man, they pack their churches, they pack their auditoriums. But then again, not everybody wants to be well. So Christ asks a question. He says, do you wish to get well? Now that's a vital question because he knows the first step towards wholeness is a desire for it. And that's a question that he would ask, not just of this man, but really of all of us. He's a representative man. Jesus healed just one out of the multitude. Again, John records the miracles that he records, the signs that he records, because if you remember, that word sign means a miracle with a message. So he heals this man. He chooses this man for a reason. And he asks this man to teach a greater spiritual truth. Do you wish to get well. Now, I've been in full-time ministry now for over 25 years, and I've visited and have prayed for a lot of sick people. And I've discovered that there are some people who are sick physically who really don't want to get well. They are just uh, content 
to stay in their sickness. In fact, they almost enjoy it. They enjoy the self-pity, the attention it brings. Sometimes uh, they use it as an escape to really live life and to be responsible people. I've learned that what is true, too, of some people who are sick physically is also true of some people who are sick spiritually. They don't want to get well. Why? Because they lavish in their sin. Jesus said they love their evil deeds, and so they will not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. They don't really want to be born again because in the deepest recesses of their heart, they cling and cherish sin. I spoke with a woman recently who was listening through our radio ministry, and as it turns out, she's in high-dollar prostitution. But the Lord couldn't help her, and I really couldn't help her when I spoke to her on the phone because she didn't wish to get well. I said, well, there's some things you need to repent of. I said, you need to quit your job and get a real job. She said, okay, I think I'll do that. And so she told the people she was going to quit. And within one day, her car was gone and her cell phone was gone. Because you see some rich businessmen over there in Hilton Head give her a nice Cadillac to drive and a cell phone to use and a lavish apartment to live in and a pimp who pays her a significant wage. And after a day or two, she said, No, I can't live without these things. You see, she didn't really want to get well. So I couldn't help her and the Lord couldn't help her. But it's a very important question. Do you wish to get well? I spent a good deal of time yesterday, over an hour with a man on the phone with his marriage problems. And I listened to he and to his wife, both believers. I said, do you believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? That's what the Bible says. Not some things, but all things. Yes. The question is, will you let Christ strengthen you? And the question is, do you want to get well? Suppose you're walking along and you fall in a hole. You're down in the hole and you just bemoan that you're in the hole. You complain constantly, I'm down in this hole. My parents didn't tell me there was a hole that I might fall in. Oh, I need to get into a support group on how to live in a hole. I need medication to cover over the pain of living in the hole. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you want to get out of the hole? Do you wish to get well? And we live in a society of victims. And Jesus actually uses a Greek verb that means will. Literally, the text says, do you will to get well? Now, Christians all the time argue the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, especially as it applies to salvation and the doctrine of sovereign election. But I want to tell you that divine sovereignty never overplays and overpowers and violates the free will of man. God does not ravish people to convert them. He woos them, but they must choose. God has given them a will. There's an old story of a group of preachers who are discussing divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they got into a heated argument over the subject. Some of them were hyper-Calvinists, and they said, well, nobody can choose God. God chooses man. Man doesn't have a will that's totally free. God chose some to spend eternity in heaven, and God chose some to spend eternity in hell. God's sovereign in the whole matter. Well, on the other side of the spectrum, the other side of the room were the Arminians, named after Jacob Arminius, who said, no, it's totally 
free will. God doesn't have anything to do with it. That man has been left with a spark of life in himself, and he can respond totally independent of God, that whosoever will may come. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, the two groups split, and there was one fellow right in the middle. And he thought, well, you know, these Calvinists are right on the one hand, because the Bible says there is none who seeks God, no, not one. That no man, Jesus said, can become a Christian unless the Father first initiates, unless the Father first draws him. Then he thought, but these Arminian brothers are right too. The Bible does say, whosoever will may come. My free will is involved. But he said, I think I'll go over here with the Calvinists. And he went over there and they saw him coming. They said, well, why did you come over here? He said, well, I just wanted to. I came as a result of my own free will. (laughs) They said, well, you don't belong over here. So he went over to the other side and they said, why are you coming here? Well, they sent me over here against my will. They said, well, you can't come here as well. Listen, it's not either or, it's both and. People ask me, are you Arminian or are you Calvinistic? I'm Calvinian. I believe in the sovereignty of God and in the free will of man, and the Bible brings the two together. But what I don't want you to miss here is that sovereign God is appealing in this context to the free will of man. Do you wish to get well? Verse 7, the sick man answered, Sir... I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, you'd think this man would have responded, yeah, I want to be healed, but instead he gives some of these sighing excuses. It's really a picture of his sad condition, that his will was probably at this point as paralyzed as his body. And as we'll see next time, when the Lord interprets this miracle, he will make that very point. Indeed, this man illustrates the tragic state of the Jewish people in his day and really the spiritual state of everyone in this world because by nature, we are spiritually paralyzed. We are unable to help ourselves. Unless God intervenes in His grace, none of us will be saved. If you're here today and you're thinking you can somehow earn your way to heaven, you are not in a position to be saved. God does not help those who help themselves. Jesus Christ is very clear that God helps the helpless. And this man typifies all of us paralyzed in sin and those people in verse 40 that he will describe, this nation that is unwilling to come. And so Jesus asks a very important question, do you will to get well? The man's problem of having no one to put him in the water is no, had really become an excuse. I mean, think of your way through it. Listen listen to what he says. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. Today we say, well, there's no one around to help me. So what can I do? So what do people do? What are they doing? They're looking to their fellow man for the solution. In our world, our churches are filled with people like this. People who depend more on men than they do on Almighty God. When they have a problem, the first one they come to is not God but man. They want to talk to the pastor, a counselor. They want to go to the next seminar, read the next book. I said to that couple, have you been getting down on your knees every day and asking Almighty God to intervene in your marriage and to help you? No, we hadn't thought of that. 
See, you can use all the excuses in the world, and this man blamed people. No one's here to help me. Follow further. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, that's another excuse. Things weren't quite right for a miracle. The conditions weren't right. Had this man ever thought that possibly God could work outside the arena of circumstances? That God could pull off this healing even if he wasn't the first one in the water? People today are not willing very often to let Jesus Christ heal them spiritually because they're looking for some great sweeping emotion to engulf them. And when they feel a certain way, they'll give their life to the Lord. Or when the circumstances of their life are right, when they get this duck in order and that one and so on, then they'll become a Christian. Look at his third excuse. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Somebody always seems to be getting in my way and hindering the miracle. He's blaming others for their past failures rather than focusing on present opportunities. This man, what was he? He was looking to the pool to heal him. Not to the God who is working in the pool. Here's a helpless, hopeless, really hideous kind of fellow who's got all kinds of excuses. That's the man who is signed. Finally, I want us to consider the master who is sovereign. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. Major question. How do you take someone who is stuck in unbelief and give them a new perspective? Only by giving them faith. Well, how do you give faith to someone? The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so what does this man get? He gets a word from sovereign God. Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And those words are living and active as are all of God's word. It pierces the heart of this man. This man never stops for a moment upon reflection to see whether this is an impossible command. In faith, his limbs respond. He is flooded uh, with, with strength in those paralyzed limbs. And he gets up and he walks. Now, very clearly... He doesn't know at this point that this is God in human flesh, the Messiah, the promised Christ that is speaking to him. At this point, he doesn't even know his name. He doesn't know he's having a direct encounter with God Almighty. And even as I preached this morning, and some of you hear me teach from this book we call the Bible, you may not know that the book I am preaching from is the only book on the face of the earth that God inspired. You may not know that it is the authoritative word of God, but as I speak, as I preach God's word, you know because it touches the heart that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and that's why God can hold you accountable. You may never have the opportunity in this life. You may get wiped out this week through death. And you won't be able to say, well, God, I never had a chance to study all the apologetic reasons for the validity of the Christian faith. It won't cut with God because as I preach God's word, it touches the heart and deep down inside you know it's true. And this man knew it was true. 
And he responded in faith. And immediately, verse 9, the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. John briefly mentions it took place on a Sabbath day. Why? Because he wants to set the stage for the confrontation that will follow. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, the term the Jews, we studied it, if you remember, from chapter 1. Specifically, it's a reference to the Pharisees who held the real power at this time. That's how it's used and defined in chapter 1. The Jews, these religious leaders, reminded this man who had been cured on the Sabbath that it took place on the Sabbath. In fact, that's what they emphasize in the original text. Sabbath is in the emphatic position. It's like underlined in red. It reads, a Sabbath it is. And it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. They reminded this man that it was a Sabbath, and therefore it was not permissible for him to work on the Sabbath by carrying his pallet. Now, what text of Scripture might they have been using? Well, probably... Jeremiah 17 and verse 21. There, thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves. Do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. Now, the problem with these Jews is that in their strict observance of God's law, they followed its letter and they forgot its spirit. The Old Testament had forbidden work on the Sabbath, but what's work? Well, the assumption, as you're reading, in most contexts refers to your employment. And really, even in this verse in Jeremiah, people who are vendors who carry their goods through the gates to sell them. And he said, don't do that on the Sabbath day. However, the religious leaders of the day had carefully defined work by their own traditions. You can read some of the people who lived in this day. Their writings have come down to us. For instance, one rabbi says, if you have a toothache on the Sabbath, you cannot put vinegar on your teeth to alleviate the toothache. Otherwise, it's work. However, he writes, if you happen to be eating some food and you put some vinegar on your food and in the process your tooth is healed, it's okay. All kinds of weird things like that. Now, one interesting regulation, and I quote directly, it's put in the 20th century English, a rabbi from this day wrote, that if a man took out a living man on a couch, he is not culpable by reason of the couch, since the couch was secondary. See, they recognized that God allowed acts of compassion on the Sabbath, and the Lord in some of his miracles will appeal to this very truth. So if a man was sick and on his couch and you carried the man on his couch, that was an act of compassion, so it was not work. But the problem in this case is the man is carrying the couch. So these Jews, they don't rejoice in the great miracle that has been done. They focus in their legalistic ways on the violation of the Sabbath law. Now, It's interesting, we know that Christ was not asking this man to break the Sabbath for at least two reasons. Number one, the Bible says God cannot tempt anyone with evil. And since Jesus Christ is God, everything he ever did was right. And number two, Christ was not asking this man to break the Sabbath by working. Because carrying around the man's mat, carrying around mats for a living is not what the man did for his job. But you see, the Lord's dealing with legalists here. 
He's not asking a man to break the Sabbath. He's asking him to defy the legalism that had sucked all the joy out of the Sabbath. And what God had really intended to be a blessing in that day, the Pharisees, by their dozens of rules and regulations, had made it a great chore and burden. Now, according to these Jews, I guess the man should have left his pallet there until the Sabbath was over, or else he should have... uh, left his bed there, you know, chancing it might have been stolen. But listen, this guy is poor. Lay aside that Christ told him to pick it up. He's poor. It would be unthinkable. This fellow would have been assigned to poverty in the first century by his infirmity. But Christ in essence said, forget all their legalistic traditions. I'm the one who made the Sabbath. You do what I say. The man answers him. Look at verse 11. He answers the crowd. He who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. Now, you know, it must have been obvious to this man, if not to these Pharisees, these Jews, that the one who healed him had a greater authority than what they had. I mean, think about it for just a second. He just by his words spoke. And this man who had been by this pool for over 38 years instantly was healed. How do you explain it? He either comes with the authority and power of God, and if he comes with the authority and power of God, if God is behind him, God would not break his own rules on the Sabbath. Or he's performing a miracle by the power of the devil. And so Christ repeatedly does miracles on the Sabbath because he's going to call their hand. They must decide, do what I do. Is it what I do by the authority of Almighty God or by the devil? You choose. You know what many of them chose. By Beelzebul, you cast out demons. By Beelzebul, you did the miracle, Matthew 12. So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? Who is the one who healed you? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away from the crowd. Remember, people had Messiah fever in this day, and they wanted a Messiah who would crush Rome, who would make Israel a great superpower again. Because that's one picture of Messiah in the Old Testament. But it's a picture that relates not to the first coming, but to the second coming. When he comes the first time, he comes as a suffering servant. When he comes the second time, he comes as a sovereign Lord. Afterward, we're told, Jesus found him in the temple. Jesus slipped away. The crowd is just, uh, they're, they're just dumbfounded by all that is happening. They're amazed at what, what is happening. And they're looking at this man. He slips away. And so Jesus found him in the temple. And no doubt he expected him to be there. He knew this man, knew everything about him. Maybe this is one of the reasons he chose this man. I'm sure there were other people with paralysis. But this man had something in his heart that was responsive to the Lord. Remember when Jesus healed the ten lepers? Only one turned around and said, thank you, Lord. Jesus said, where are the other nine? Did I not heal them as well? So this man, according to the prescribed offering of the Old Testament, goes to the temple. And Jesus, knowing that he would go there, meets him. Because he's interested not just in his physical healing, but his spiritual healing. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 012. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.